Please remain standing for the gospel lesson, which begins at Luke chapter 1 and verse 39. Hear the gospel of the Lord. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judah, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. And Mary said, My soul praises the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. You may recall from shortly after 9-11, the story of John Walker Lind. John Walker Lind was known as the American Taliban. Young man with a difficult family background. He grows up in the MTV era. And he rejects the immorality that he sees. He rejects the consumerism of American culture. He converts to Islam. He defects. He ends up in Afghanistan fighting for the Taliban. Now, while the pathologies of Western culture which he saw are real, indeed they're grievous, this is something I wish our elites would get here a little more clearly. The pathologies are real. The immorality is real. The consumerism is real. The idolatry is real. The materialism is real. But the rejection of the culture as a whole is utterly unjustified. So this young man exemplified a temperament which can only seem to react to abuses by throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Simply couldn't see past American greed and American immorality and American corruption to what was decent and noble and worth preserving. So he just throws the whole thing out. I would suggest that in Protestant circles, we suffer from this sort of temperament with respect to Mary, the mother of our Lord. We have often allowed the excesses, real excesses, 
not imagined, real excesses of other traditions to blind us to the glorious portrait of Mary in Scripture. Well, if they are guilty of an extravagant exaltation of her, then we're often guilty of an ungrateful neglect. It's a reactionary thing. We don't want to do it because they do it. It's sad, but it's probably not inaccurate to say that we heap more honor and affection on John Calvin and Martin Luther than we do on this magnificent woman. That's strange. But that's what reactionary cultures do. So it'll benefit us a great deal, I think, to seriously engage what is said about and by Mary in this text this morning from Luke chapter 1. I want to look at it under five headings. The first one is the background. The second is what I'm calling the God magnifier. God magnifier. And third, prophetess of the kingdom. Prophetess of the kingdom. Fourth is covenant theologian. And fifth, destiny. So, first the background. What, what, what has always struck me about Mary as we encounter her in the Gospels not ju- it's not just her humility, though that is striking. It's her rank ordinariness. Her obscurity. Her hiddenness. There, there's one very real sense in which her whole story is about the dignity and the glory of faithfulness apart from the public eye. Unlike Eve who listened to the serpent's promise that you shall be like God. At the Annunciation, Mary responds in obedience and faith to her own angelic visitation. She doesn't understand, but she submits with these beautiful words, Behold the handmaiden of the Lord, be it done unto me according to your word. And so at the Annunciation, Again, this is the background to our text this morning. We see her there. And we see her as the elect mother of the Son of God. Highly favored. Full of grace. And with this angelic visit, her obscure, nondescript existence is now radically disrupted. And now this girl, this very young, obscure Jewish peasant girl, is pregnant with the desire of all the nations. And she makes the trip that we read at the front end of the Gospel text this morning to visit her relative Elizabeth. It's there in Luke's Gospel, beginning in verse 39. So, at the sound of Mary's greeting, John the Baptist leaps in Elizabeth's womb. And Elizabeth pronounces a benediction on her. The angels already pronounced a benediction on her. Elizabeth pronounces two of them, really. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you shall bear. And she says later, blessed is she who believed what the Lord said to her 
would be accomplished. That last benediction from Elizabeth evokes Abraham's hoping against all hope and believing in the Lord's promise. And there are many, many comparisons between the faith of Abraham and the faith of Mary. Mary responds to this benediction of Elizabeth with what has become known to us, what has become known to history as the Magnificat. In verses 46 and following, And it's that song I want to take a closer look at this morning. And in this prayer or song of Mary's, we get a radical meditation on the kingdom of God. An extraordinarily insightful one. The kingdom which is now just breaking into history in the events which are transpiring in Mary's own life. So that's the background The second point then is Mary as the God magnifier. She begins in verse 46 by declaring my soul glorifies the Lord or praises in some verses, but it's really magnifies. The word for glorify is magnificat in Latin, which is where the name of the song comes from. And so Mary, first and foremost, is a God magnifier. She makes God big when you encounter her. Her God, as this song indicates, is immense. And her vision of God is broad and deep. Now, I know it sounds almost redundant and obvious to say it, but the great preoccupation of the church is God. (laughs) This is often lost. I mean, there's a lot of other things which are legitimate preoccupations. It must be done and that are part of the church's life and service. But they will thin out in your own life. In fact, they will become stale if God himself is not the great central pulsating vision. And we forget this. I think we forget this. That the great glory of the church is the celebration, the meditation, the the coming to know and penetrating into the depth of the triune God. The infinite, self-subsisting, self-sufficient, eternal, immutable, unchangeable God. Mary magnifies that God. She proclaims His greatness. She rejoices openly in His works. She says in verse 47, My spirit rejoices... I magnify and I rejoice in my Savior. God is her Savior, even as He is the Savior of all men. So you have this exultant magnifying, and the reason for it begins to unfold in verse 48. He's been mindful, the text says, of the humble state of His servant. Her vision of God is big, Because she's small in her own sight. And when she speaks of her lowly state, she's simply stating a fact. There's not a shred of self-pity here, as if Mary had a self-image problem. This is just a sober assessment of her station in life, economically, socially, politically, by every public reckoning, 
Her lot in life is poor and humble. Mary was born in what I like to call Limitationville. If you're my age, you're getting to know the place pretty well by now. That's what life is. It's one long, slow descent into a little town called Limitationville. That's where Mary was born. She never knew anything else. She has no world pulsating with possibilities. She has no wide range of exciting life options. She starts at the bottom. I recall uh, a number of years ago seeing an interview with uh, Jim Baker, the famous and then disgraced televangelist. And the interview was conducted after he was released to prison. You may remember he went to prison, I think for some financial fraud-related reasons. I have no idea what he's doing today, but I saw this interview after he got out of prison. And what struck me was how genuinely repentant he was. How clear-headed and sober. He spoke of the gospel as good news for the poor and the weak and the dangers of, and the corruption that came with all the wealth and power that he had accumulated. He'd lost everything. Everything. But he saw the world through new eyes. He was at the bottom. Mary reminds us that even in our lowly estate, stripped of everything, constrained, our lives are constrained, the world still opens out for us into the infinite glory of the God of Israel. But this seems to only be seen often by people who are at the bottom. It's as if for Mary, the very condition of her poverty serves to enhance her fellowship with and her vision of the living God. And so in the, in the constraints, in, the, in the, uh, the poverty of her existence, she cultivates a God-magnifying soul. And I think she's a wonderful example for us at this point, right? We live in the midst of constraints, all of us. Vexations. Bitter disappointments, brokenness, unresolved things, lives that didn't go the way we wanted them to go. It's in the midst of those things that you're to become a God magnifier. Those things are not things that are in the way of you magnifying God. Those things are the means by which you become a God magnifier. And so the result in verse 48 is remarkable. She says... From now on, all generations will call me blessed. Here's the mystery. Adam and Eve grasped and they were cast down. Mary doesn't grasp an irony of ironies. She's made a name for herself. All succeeding generations have indeed called her blessed and we're joining the chorus here this morning. She is blessed. She's more blessed than the Protestant fathers who we extol. God exalts those who exalt Him. And she continues. 
She continues exalting the one who's exalted her. She calls God the mighty one. Again, I think there's a keen insight into the logic of the gospel because this might that Mary's talking about is not raw power. Where has she seen God's might? She's seen it manifested in her pregnancy. This is the power of God. The Mighty One has done great things for me, she says. You know, in a real sense, she does recognize that she's at the center of what's happening. The Mighty One has done great things for me. But she also knows it's not as an isolated individual. That that becomes very clear later in the song. She stands, Mary stands at the end of a long line of mothers in Israel. Eve and Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel and Hannah and many more. And she stands at the end of that line, but then she also stands at the threshold of the church. You may not have thought about this, but it was a commonplace with the early church fathers to see in Mary a unique image of the church. Because the church is Christ's virginal bride and our fruitful mother. The church is virginal bride and fruitful mother, and Mary is holy virgin and fruitful mother. And no one else in the history of redemption can we say that of. And so she, she serves as an almost unique picture of the church, and she stands at the hinge, the beginning of the church and the end of Israel's history. And so she recognizes that these great things which God has done for her reverberate out into the whole community. Look at verse 50. His mercy extends to those who fear Him from generation to generation. She sees something going on in her pregnancy, and it's, it's very early in her pregnancy. Can't be more than a couple weeks. Certainly it's not far on. She just got the announcement from the angel and headed out to the hill country to visit Elizabeth. And she's connected all this up with the purposes of God throughout the generations of his covenant. And that brings us to the third point. The prophetess of the kingdom. This is probably the most surprising point of all, I think. For the rest of the song, Mary sounds like, and in fact she is, a prophet. She's a latter-day Amos or Jeremiah. You know, just as in, in some of the John the Baptist uh, stories we looked at, some of the sentimentality of Christmas is scraped away and we get to see the whole thing in all of its uh, sharp lines and sharp edges. Well, here you see that Mary is no harmless wallflower. What she's about to say is gritty, prophetic stuff. In verses 51 through 54, she'll speak of God's works using the words, He has. Seven times He has performed mighty deeds. He's scattered the proud. He's brought down rulers. He's lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry. He's sent the rich away empty. He's helped His servant Israel. He has. That's the prophetic past tense. She sees these things as as good as done. Now, what instinct is it that she has 
This is one of the stunning things about Mary, is her theological instincts. An angel appears to her and says, you're going to conceive a baby, he's going to be called the Son of God. Now, we don't know for sure, but Mary's, Mary's somewhere between 14 and 17, somewhere in there. And she doesn't say, cool, I'm going to have a baby. This is really neat. She starts talking about the world being overturned. The baby's not even born yet. She sees that the incarnation of the world entails the coming of the kingdom of God in all of its fullness according to all the promises given to Abraham throughout all generations. She grasps that already. She grasps it immediately. She grasps it instinctively. She's a visionary of what has been called the upside-down kingdom. Mary is a visionary of what has been called the upside-down kingdom. A kingdom which is not confined to, it, to your individual salvation. In fact, there's not a syllable about that here. There wasn't a syllable about it in Isaiah 2, our first Advent text. There's not a syllable about it here. So what is she, what is she saying? She's saying, you know this pregnancy I have? It's inaugurating a kingdom. And this kingdom is going to challenge all the protocols. All the standards, all the methods of advancement, all the values of the world. My kingdom is going to challenge all the values of the world. And the worldliness, the worldliness that Mary critiques here is not what evangelical Christians usually critique when they're critiquing worldliness. That becomes clear. In verse 51, that's not to say that the evangelical critiques are wrong, by the way. In, in verse 51, she says, He scattered the proud in their inmost thoughts. Really? I mean, we just have one pregnant maiden wandering around in Judea. And the claim is that the God of Israel has, has already scattered the proud? Yeah, Mary would say, he's going to do this through this thing called the gospel, through the offering of salvation by means of my baby. How's that for undoing all the wisdom of the world? Through the scandal of a crucified Messiah who is foolishness to the Greeks. What Greek wisdom arrived at this solution to the human plight? And it's a stumbling block to the Jews. This is going to scatter the proud. This is a foolishness which is wiser than the wisdom of men. In verse 52 she says, He has brought down rulers from their thrones. Again, I just want you to get the, the scene. You have, a, you have a, a teenage girl. Barely pregnant. Talking to her cousin in the kitchen of a small house in Palestine. Right? And she says, God has brought down the rulers from their thrones. He's using the weak things to shame the mighty. This is an interpretation of her pregnancy. You know, you, you've got to get Mary some systematic theology. She doesn't want one of your normal baby books when she's pregnant. 
He's using the weak things to shame the wise. Not only the proud, she says, but the powerful are going to be offended by this baby. And the coming of this kingdom, she's saying, spells the end for all despots. As Herod himself sensed, clearly sensed it. With the birth of my baby, secular political power, in Paul's words, is coming to nothing. The late uh, Richard John Newhouse, he once said that the, the first thing to say about politics is that politics is not the first thing. And I think Mary would alter that. I think she would say the first thing we must say about politics is that my baby is Lord and all other thrones will be dismantled. So she says, she says, he's exalted the lowly, verse 52, or those of humble estate. The exaltation's already happened. She says, my womb is the seat of sovereign power in the cosmos. Can your Mary do this? I wonder. You know, we, we, we do tend to think of her, I think, as a wallflower. We have a sentimental image of her. In her lowliness, she's saying, Israel's lowly history, culminating in the lowly Son of Man, has been lifted up and exalted. The lowly have been exalted, and that means in her eyes the whole social pecking order in the whole world has been in principle, already, now, in principle, overturned. Again, I ask you, do you evaluate the world this way? Do you believe that all the principles, the whole social pecking order of things has already been overturned? Because that's what Christmas is. And so in verse 53, we hear her say, he's filled the hungry with good things, but the rich he sent away empty. Here, Mary has has been read as if she were a Marxist. As if she was promulgating the social gospel. She's being mean to rich people. Now, that's a caricature. It is a caricature. But not for the reasons normally given. First, Mary, if anything, is more radical than Marx. Mary does not envision a classless society of blissful equality. She envisions a world where the rich are sent away empty. Karl Marx never thought about that. And the rich are sent away empty and the poor are filled with good things. She's only foreshadowing what her son's going to say in the Beatitudes. Where do you think he learned some of these things from? You think she taught him nothing? Blessed are the poor, Jesus will say, for theirs is the kingdom of God. My mother taught me that before I could speak. (laughs) Right? Mary says, look, this this kingdom that's in my womb, it's good news for the poor, but it's unappealing to the self-satisfied rich. In fact, my baby's going to pronounce a whole bunch of woes on them. So Mary declares that the incarnation entails a world not where the powerful share their power. She doesn't look at it that way. She says, 
The incarnation entails a world where the powerful are stripped of their power and it's given to the lowly and the weak and those without power. That's the politics of Christmas. And Mary's gospel, remember this is her gospel, this is her God-magnifying song. Her gospel proclaimed here is most definitely, most definitely a social gospel. And not because it entails support for some secular political agenda. Because this gospel is going to create a new society, thus social. A new political order called the church out of the runes that is going to be made of every other order. So wealth and power then are redistributed by the gospel. Wealth and power are redistributed by the gospel to Mary's baby and in him to the lowly, despised community of the church. This is what Mary's talking to Elizabeth about. For her, the kingdom's a series of reversals. It's destined to unravel, to judge, and then to heal all the kingdoms of the world. That's Mary as a prophetess of the kingdom. Fourth point is Mary as a covenant theologian. So all these mighty actions of God are summarized in verse 54 as helping his servant Israel. Again, you can see, notice how well she learned in the temple and in the synagogue. She paid attention. She takes up the language of the covenant. She uses the language of the Psalms and the prophets. These things, she says, are God's remembering to be merciful or remembering His mercy. Standard covenant language. All of these reversals, already spoken of as complete, even though the baby's unborn, are due, she says, not to my wishful thinking, not because I'm ecstatic and I'm in some sort of a trance, but because of God acting in accordance with his promise, in fidelity to his covenant, in remembrance of his mercies. In other words, she immediately connects this thing up all the way back to Abraham and says this event is organically situated in that history. In verse 55, she says uh, this mercy, these covenant promises, are what God spoke to Abraham and his descendants even as he said to our fathers. Isn't that amazing? It's a teenage girl. She has this deeply corporate self-consciousness. She doesn't see herself as an isolated individual who now is going to have a really important baby. She sees Abraham as her father, and she sees the covenant promises. She sees herself in the light of these ancient promises. She's thinking of the seed promise to Abraham, the land promises to Abraham, the blessings that's going to come to the nations to Abraham. She says all of these things are coming through, the, through this baby. Finally, her destiny, destiny, and her destiny and our destiny are bound together. So back to the original point. After this burst of uh, notoriety, that Mary receives in the early chapters of the Gospels. What happens, really? I mean, a- according to her lowly state, it would seem, she fades from view. She fades back into, into 
obscurity. She disappears. She's seen at the foot of her son's cross, faithful to the end. And in Acts 1, she's praying with the disciples at Pentecost. And then she vanishes, vanishes from the pages of the New Testament, or almost. Because in Revelation chapter 12, we see a woman clothed with the sun. She has the moon under her feet and a garland of 12 stars on her head. She possesses heavenly splendor and glory. And you know what this woman is doing? She's in labor with a man-child who will rule over the nations. The woman is a vivid picture of Old Testament Israel laboring, laboring in her long historical night to bring forth the Messiah. But since Mary is the one in whom this struggle culminates, the image almost certainly has a special reference to her. So who is the woman in Revelation 12? It's Israel. But that doesn't mean it's not Eve and Sarah and Hannah and Rebecca and in a singular way, Mary. And as such, that image reminds us that the hidden ones will be lit up with the radiance of God's glory. This is a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon and the stars under her feet. And this is what Paul says to us when he says, set your minds on things above for you have died and your life is hidden, obscure, rank and ordinary. Hidden with Christ and God. This hiddenness, this obscurity, are a part of our our life in Christ. But Mary teaches us this. She says, make no mistake, she says to us, power and wealth have been, are being, and shall be transferred to my baby and his people. And when Christ appears... When Advent is fully complete, you, like Mary, will be revealed with Him in regal glory. Praise be to God. Amen.